for over 62 years and 3,166 issues, and counting, Sports Illustrated has built a reputation as the pinnacle of American sports writing. Now, do we deserve that distinction? Decide for yourself. Peruse any of the roughly 80,000 stories available for free in the SI Vault, which debuted last week at si.com vault. Now it's all there. Do you remember an SI story from years past that you'd like to reread? The new vault is searchable, so you'll be able to find that story. Have a vague recollection of a cover that you enjoyed? Well, every single cover is up there, too. It's all free, and it's all at si.com vault. Once again, that's si.com vault. You know, some players, some weeks will, will accept the top five, a top ten, whatever it might be. But he believed he could win every week on the PJ Tour. Of course, we know you can't do that. But I mean, when he was stepping on the first tee of a tournament, his only thing that he would accept that week was winning. And, you know, and when he wasn't winning, it just made him practice harder. The absolute epitome of that sort of situation or that kind of thinking was the 2008 US Open at Torrey Pines. Mm-hmm. I, to this day, still don't believe that he won that tournament major golf championships in my eyes are not the guy that hits the greatest amount of good shots, it's the guy that hits the least amount of bad shots and that week, given the circumstances with this cruciate ligament the amount of poor shots he hit that week for, you know, in a major championship was probably the most he ever hit uh, and still went on to win the tournament That there, it, like his focus and desire to win that tournament regardless of any situation playing on a broken leg that there just examples or exemplifies what I'm talking about. Hello and welcome to the Golf.com podcast. I'm Jeff Ritter and I'm excited for today's guest. He's one of the most legendary and polarizing caddies in golf history. Early in his career, he carried the bags of Raymond Floyd and Greg Norman before eventually joining forces with Tiger Woods, winning 13 majors together. Recently, he worked with Adam Scott before retiring at the end of 2014. He caddied for Scott during the Masters last year, and he'll do so again at Augusta National in two weeks. Recently, he released a controversial book titled Out of the Rough, detailing his career carrying golf bags, specifically that of Tiger Woods. That book debuted digitally last fall and will be available in hardcover in the U.S. beginning next week. By now, I'm sure you know, our guest is Steve Williams. He's on the phone long distance from New Zealand, and I'm happy to have him here this week on the podcast. Steve, how are you? Good morning, Jeff. How are we doing? I'm great. Before we get into this, do you have a reliable long-distance phone plan from New Zealand? I just I want to make sure the minutes might rack up here. This is a long. This is the definition of a long-distance call. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where your studio is, but you're going to be at least ten thousand miles where I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. New York to to NZ, NYC to NZ. We appreciate the time. Let's start with the Masters. Uh, we sit here. It's Tuesday morning in New York. Uh, much later in New Zealand, but Augusta is 16 days away, and soon you'll be back working with your buddy Adam Scott. When did you decide this year that you wanted to to reunite with Adam, and how did you guys together decide on that decision that that you would come back to the bag this year? Yeah, in 2014, I retired as a caddy, Jeff, as you know, and uh, after 36 years of caddying, I thought it was time just to step back and focus a little bit more on my family and, and, and some of the activities I like to do. Um, it's not that I don't love the job, but um, the travel from New Zealand where I live and I've always lived just got to be a little bit too much and got a bit sick of the travel, I guess. But uh, always enjoyed the job. But 
So I retired at the end of 2014, and midway through 2015, uh, Adam called me up and said, look, I'm going to spot a bother here. Things aren't going good. Would you come back and work a few tours for me? And I, I agreed to work. I couldn't work his entire schedule, so I did come back and carry for a few tours, and we had a good time, and he decided that um, if it was possible, we could do the job share situation where he had one caddy do X amount of tournaments and then myself do uh, X amount of tournaments. And that, that's where we're at for 2016. I'll caddy not quite half the tournaments, but just under half the tournaments that Adam plays. So I haven't carried this year so far. Augusta will be my first tournament uh, at the Masters, and I'll carry for Adam in all four major championships and, um, and, and a few other tournaments. So ideally for me, that's a situation that's very good. It doesn't give me too much time away from home, but I love to carry in those major championship golf tournaments, so I'm fortunate to be able to do that, and once again with Adam Scott. So it was last summer you decided you'd sort of return as a job share type of thing, so it wasn't, you, you sort of have known for a while that you would be back working with Adam for this Masters then, that's correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the yeah. completion of uh, 2015, Adam and I discussed, you know, what would be best for us both going forward. You know, for me, I couldn't do it full-time anymore, and made that very clear to Adam, and um, we, we agreed that, you know, could we do the part-time thing? He was very keen to have me carry from in the major championships. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Was there any part of you that thought, because Adam has had such success, great success at the start of this season, um, as you said, last summer he called you and, and he was struggling and, and you worked with him for a while, but this year he's just been, he's been arguably the hottest player in the game the first part of the season. Any part of you think maybe I'll maybe I'll sit this one out and let him just stay with David Clark just because they've been on such a run? Well, I mean, look, the, the player has the final say on anything uh, when it comes to the caddy. With and if, you know, Adam, if he had said to me, "Look, things are going really great. I'm going to continue that," you know, I'd be all for that because you know I know how things go. And when you get on a run and things are going good, you don't want to break things up, but. You know, we discussed the situation earlier in the year, and you know, he's fine to have me come back. Obviously, I've catered Augusta a lot. I've been around there many, many times, and um, Adam and I have had success there in the past. So um, if he's happy with it, I'm happy with it. But, you know, if, if I understand exactly what you're saying. and um, But that, that hasn't been mentioned, and all, we're all set to go at Augusta. Okay. How many Masters will this be for you? Um. I think this is going to be uh, in the neighbourhood of uh, 28 or 29, I believe it is. That's a big number. Yeah, so I've, 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 walked, I've, walked, I've walked around there a few times. <laughs> <laughs> so with all that experience, have you? do you start preparing for the Masters now? Have you already prepared? Or is it one of those things where you just go to the old notes and, and take a walk in the start of the week and make adjustments from there? Yeah, look, it's, it's an unusual um, tournament in the fact that at most golf tournaments, you know, you can go there prior to the tournament. You can go on the weekend before and walk around the course there. Of course, they don't allow you to do that there. You, when you're, you have to, in order to be on the golf course, you have to be with the player that you're caddying for, um, dressed up in those white border suits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, you, you know, um, you know, if I was hadn't caddied for some time, and let's just say the next tournament was the U.S. Open, you know, I could go there the weekend before on the Saturday or the Sunday and, and take a walk around the course, um, you know, early in the morning or late in the evening when no one was out there and, and get yourself ready for it. But you can't do that, I guess. Like I said, the only time you can be on the course is when you're with your player. So, but, you know, it's having been the only major or being the only major that's played at the same venue year in and year out, um, 
you know, it's not going to take long to get ready for that tournament. How many pages of notes do you have? What, do you, what, are, what, what are we talking here as far as research or observations or things you've collected? How, how extensive is the is the yeah, Steve well, Williams notebook? It, yeah, you, yeah, you just have in the yardage book that you have, um, you'll have a one page, it'll have a diagram of the whole one, and then on the same page on the outside of the page will just be a, like a, a place where you can place all your notes. So every hole is from... You know, particularly on the greens, there's a putt that'll break more than it looks, and a putt that'll break less than it looks, and it's all the little little things that you learn about the course all the time, and you, know, you keep all those little notes, and that's where uh, when Adam won the tournament in 2013, the little note that I had in my book there that when the flag is located in the Sunday position, which is the back left hand side of the green, there, if you're putting from the right side of that green, that putt breaks a lot more than it looks. So just little things like that, you keep notes of that, and unless you get to a course where they've dramatically changed the greens, which they don't do there, um, those notes are going to be very good and they can be very beneficial at times. So you, 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 you certainly, before the week starts, you, you look at all your notes, and as you're walking along the golf course and you're playing the tournament, uh, and you get to the green, you, you know, you, you look at your book to say, is this okay, this part here, is there anything special about this part you've noted in your book before? You you reference a very famous moment in in recent Masters history, which is of course Adam Scott's playoff winning putt, uh, curling it about I guess about a twenty footer on his playoff to to win his first green jacket. He credited you for the read after he made that. Do you think Adam could have made that putt without your notes and your read that day? Well, you know, it was one of those things I knew most likely uh, after he hit the second shot onto the green in the playoff hole. I knew most likely that he'd probably never had that putt before because, as you know, when the whole location was in the back part of the green on the 10th hole at Augusta, you never challenged getting the ball back there because if you made a slight judgment on error only five steps behind that flag and you go over the green there into those azalea bushes, you're in trouble, that's for sure. So you, whenever the pin is located in, on the Sunday position, the pin position, you hit the ball to the time, hit the ball to the dead middle of the green, so if you're trying to hit it to the end of the green and you do make a few, you know, you make a little bit of an error and hit it a few yards long or a few yards short, you're still putting on the green. You know, you saw Arnold Cabrera hit a good shot right to the middle of the green there. So mm-hmm. Adam, Adam challenged, well, like I sort of challenged him as we were preparing to hit our second shot. You know, how badly do you want to win this tournament? Do you want to win it now? And he said, yes. I said, okay, we've got to get back to that pin. He was going to hit a seven iron, selected a six iron. Uh, and got the ball back to that pin. And then I knew he probably hadn't had that putt before because, like I said, you don't get the ball back there. But I've seen that putt only once before in all my time at Augusta, and I'd written in my book there that this putt breaks a lot more than it looks. So Adam had me read the putt, and he said, I think it's about a hole out to the right. I said, Adam, that's not even close. This putt breaks at least twice as much as that. I said, it's about two and a half cups out to the right. And I said, trust me, I know this putt breaks more than it looks. And that's where, as a caddy, yeah, sometimes you, you you know you're thinking that, and sometimes it's difficult to say that because you th- you know you might think, well, what if I'm wrong? But that's where a good caddy makes his living that he steps up and says something like that that makes a difference. Of course, Adam holds the putt and went on to win the tournament. And you go, and you've made quite a living doing it. What uh, if you had to, if you had a great week, if you had the best week you could possibly have this week? How many shots could, do you think you could save Adam Scott at Augusta National over four rounds? Yeah, look, it's very hard to quantify how many shots a caddy can save a player. You know, that's, that's a very hard question to quantify. But I think of all the tournaments you, you caddy in, Augusta National is the 
best test of a caddy and a player, in my eyes, the consequences for selecting the wrong club at Augusta uh, can be very difficult. You know, the penalty can be very high. You've got to be so exact there. You've got to get the right club on every shot because if you're long or short on most holes there, it's very difficult to get the ball up and down. So for 72 holes there, you need to go around there and select every club selection. You know, and sometimes it's not easy to select the right club there. Some of those holes are a lot more downhill than it looks and a lot more uphill. You know, you've got to be spot on with your club selection. And the penalty uh, can be very penal for hitting the wrong club selection. So, But, you know, if you go around the entire tournament and you're caring for one of the better players in the field there and you feel that for 72 holes, you know, you don't make any mistakes as a caddy, you don't select the wrong club, uh, you know, the player that you're caring for is probably going to be in contention. So, you know, I think as a player and a caddy, you know, I always go there. It's a great test. And, you, you know, not only are you trying to do well in the tournament, but you're testing yourself to make sure if you could, you know, say to yourself on Sunday night when you drive out of there that we played 72 holes and didn't make one mistake, that would be the course you want to do that at. In your book, Out of the Rough, you rank your all-time top 10 greatest victories. And number one is your, it was in 1980, your first win working with Bob Charles. Number two was the 1983 Australian Masters working with Greg Norman. Number three was the 99 PGA with Tiger Woods. That was the famous duel against Sergio. What would an Adam Scott Masters victory this year uh, rank? Would that crack your top ten, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it probably would, to be fair. Um, uh, not only, the, no, not particularly being the Masters, but... I think if Adam could step forward and win a second major championship, I've always said to Adam uh, that to be considered one of the great players of the game, I think you've got to have multiple major championships beside your name. There's many players, as you know, throughout the years, uh, the great game that we've played, win one major championship, and that's it. That's all they have on their CV is one major championship. There's so many of those, but... When you go up to two major championships and three, that list gets shorter and shorter as you go up. Yep. So I think it would be fantastic. Uh, I think Adam is a player that you know, certainly has the ability to win more than one major. So if that second major championship came, would it be Augusta or one of the other ones? I think that would crack my top ten. Well, he certainly seems to be peaking at the right time. Augusta can't get, get here fast enough for Adam Scott, and I'm sure for you as well. Uh, I want to shift gears for a minute. I'd like to talk about your book, Out of, Out of the Rough, and also your old boss, Tiger Woods. Uh, this book, of course, landed in the headlines last fall when the digital edition came out, uh, especially for one particular passage. Uh, you wrote about your first conversation with Tiger uh, after uh, the news of his scandal broke, and you had you had, had a e- quick email exchange with him. You'd had a quick phone call, but your first sort of man-to-man, face-to-face uh, chat uh, in the run-up to to Woods's return to golf um, at the Masters that year, and you had some things. You had some some of your own grievances you wanted to air with Woods, and you wrote this quote: "One thing that really pissed me off was how he would flippantly cl- toss a club in the general direction of the bag, expecting me to go over and pick it up. I felt uneasy about bending down to pick up his discarded club. It was like I was his slave." Now, that quote made the rounds last fall, Steve, and you've had some time to reflect. Is that still how you feel? Um, we, don't use that same, we don't use that word here in this part of the world like you use it in America, and that was a mistake on my behalf. And we often would say, like, for instance, if we were sitting at the dinner table and my son would say to me, can you get up and give me some water, Dad? When you, and I would say, what, do you think I'm your slave? 
we'll go, that's the way we use that word here. We use it very general, uh, and that's a mistake I made. But I was sort of referring to one of the things I didn't enjoy, if it was something I didn't enjoy, because every job there's the great things that you enjoy, and if there's something I didn't enjoy, was being, not being down. But, you know, going away and picking a golf club up off the ground, uh, I didn't enjoy that, and that was just my way I described how I felt. Now, I should have used a different word, but, you know, obviously that was a controversial word to use, and, you know, you learn, you learn going forward that that wasn't the right word to use um, in that situation, or not, you know, the terminology of that word, you use it differently in America. Are you still angry at Tiger? It seems like, you know, you write at length about your relationship and your disappointment with him uh, post-scandal. Obviously, you're up, you were upset about the way things ended, but are you still mad at Tiger today? Look, the great saying thing, time heals. Of course, time heals everything. We all know that. And look, you know, I would love to see him return to the PGA Tour and be one of the stars of the PGA Tour. Nobody, including myself, wants to see his career end the way it ended in the circumstances that it ended. You know, he is a fantastic player, an incredible competitor, and we'd all like to see him go out on a high. Any sportsman wants to go out on a high, and I'm sure he does. So I'm sure if he if he can get himself fit and able to compete on the PJ Tour, he'll want to go out on his own terms on a high. So um, let's hope that he does that. There were critics who wrote that the the tone that you took with Tiger in this book made you made it seem like you weren't you weren't grateful for what good what Woods gave you in terms of money, uh, in terms of status, in terms of a comfortable life in New Zealand. Uh, how do you respond to that? I don't think the money thing ever came into me. If you successful in anything you do, obviously the rewards can be larger than, than normal. But people always have their own way that they look at things. But you know, I certainly never did caddy with the with the you know visiting, making large sums of money. I caddied because I loved the game of golf and loved to be involved with it. Before we continue, I want to pause to talk about another podcast at Sports Illustrated. All throughout this crazy month of March, Sports Illustrated has run a special show. And they're not done yet. That show is called Turney Talk, and it's hosted by Ted Keith and David Gardner. Just as they did throughout the first weekend of games, Ted and David recap the previous day's highlights and preview what's to come. That means Final Four Talk, as this wild tournament continues forward. Once again, that's Turney Talk. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or SI.com slash podcasts. And with that, back to my discussion with Steve Williams. Well, there's one other excerpt from your conversation with Tiger that that first man-to-man, uh, the first time you sat down with him after, after his scandal, um, you described in the book thusly, quote, I wanted him to prove to me that he could change his behavior and show me and the game of golf more respect. And you also, in that passage, mentioned that you asked Tiger to stop spitting on the greens and generally sort of clean up his act on the golf course. It, it almost sounded like you took a scolding tone in that first conversation post-scandal. Is that how it went? Well, I mean, you know, like we, we knew it, it was such an unusual situation how everything transpired, um, you know, with, 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 with however you want to describe the actions that happened. But, you know, for, for me, having been away for some period, you know, when it came back to work for Tiger, I needed to set the record straight and get everything behind us and get a clear picture going forward. And you've got to be strong like that. That's my personality is to, you know, I sat down and, and, and aired my frustrations and what we thought was going to be best for him and I to see going forward. 
Do you think that was the right time you air to air the frustrations? I just wonder. You guys were by by all accounts great friends at one time. He was he was the best man in your wedding. I read the passage and thought it just seemed to, it felt a little odd to have you're sitting across from your buddy your and your boss and he's been through this difficult time. It, to me, it seemed like a strange, possibly a strange moment to to sort of air it out. Now, as you say, you are a straight shooter, but do you regret maybe the way you approached that first conversation? No, absolutely not. I don't I have any regrets for that. Before we went to play on the return to the tour, you've got to have a clear focus. You've got to have a picture of what you're trying to achieve. You want to have both be on the same page. You know, I don't want to be thinking, what's he thinking? He doesn't want to be thinking, what's he's thinking? Absolutely not. How I went about it, uh, I spent some time thinking how I went about it, and he even went to the point of getting some advice on how to go about doing what I was proceeding to do. I have regrets on that. Okay. Now, there are critics who would point out the irony of that moment, of you asking Tiger or sort of demanding for that Tiger clean up his act and, and, and change his behavior on the course. You, of course, were known at times of being aggressive with galleries, that there were incidents of throwing cameras and snapping at fans, and some called you a bully. Do you regret any of your own on-course behavior during those years with Tiger? Look, the, uh, the only thing that I regret in my entire time as a caddy to date is when Adam Scott won the World Golf Championship at Akron, the WCT Invitational, when David Ferrity came onto the green mm-hmm. on the 18th hole and grabbed me before I had a chance to go to the scoring trader and check the scorecard. Um, I don't even remember what I said then, but what I said was absolutely inappropriate at the time. That's the only thing I regret as a caddy. When I was working for Tiger, uh, I always tried to make sure that everybody in that group that was playing with him and was in that group was playing on a level playing field. And sometimes I had to be sort of a marshal and, and, and control, try and keep things in an ordinarily, orderly way so that all the people in that group, the other players, could have the same opportunity to play well. As you well know, when Tiger was at his peak, it was kind of a little bit of a circus. He attracted many new fans to the game, which was great, and a lot of people that didn't understand golf etiquette and what the sort of rules are and, and how you conduct yourself uh, from a gallery point of view. And, you know, and there was a lot of media there as well. It had a fascination. They weren't golf media. They were from other interests. So it, it became quite a circus. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, part of my job was to try and keep, keep things under control. But I don't regret any of the things uh, from that point of view. Why did you think it was part of your job to keep things under control? I mean, you'd, you'd spent many years working with Ray Floyd, Greg Norman, Great players. Those are big galleries at the time. Obviously, as you say, Tiger Woods created a different level of circus. But why did you feel you needed to take it upon yourself? Is it something Tiger asked you to do? Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the actions that I was taking were things that were necessary to do. I mean, you know, there are only so many security people out there and they can't see everything that's going on. And sometimes the players, you know, they want certain situations. They want to have this happen or that happen. And, uh, you know, I, I took it upon myself in some instances to try and help quiet. So, you know, I wasn't not the only caddy that does that. The caddy that's working for their players, a lot of players don't like the TV people standing in this position, someone standing in that position, the marshal on the tee can be stand on the side. So as a caddy, you, you, you're constantly not only are you caring for the player, but you're trying to get the, the, the people on the tee and the, the, so forth and all the different movement that goes around, trying to keep that under control. That's just part of the job. Is that aspect uh, dramatically different working with Adam now than it was with Tiger a few years ago? 
Look, I mean, you know, Tiger brought a whole new following to the game, and which we're all thankful for. He made the game so much more fun to view, and there's a lot more people watch the game and that. But, you know, every player has a different base, a different following, just... You know, and Tiger, like I said, he brought a whole new fan base to the game, and that, and it was just sort of different. But yeah, I think you know, with Adam Scott, it was different to Tiger Woods, and as it would be with any other player. You know, every player is different, and everyone has a different sort of fan base following. There's another point in the book I wanted to ask you about the the Tiger Woods Phil Mickelson dynamic. Uh, you write that after Phil won his first Masters in 2004. It, it got Tiger's attention, made him a little bit worried that it might open up the floodgates and, and for Phil, and he might win more, mas- more majors, more masters, and those would be majors sort of coming out of Tiger's pocket. Uh, turns out Tiger may have been right, because Phil did win several more. How did the Woods-Mickelson relationship evolve during your time with Tiger? Because it certainly seems in 2004, Tiger had his eye on Phil, and, and it was sort of eyeing him as his chief rival. How did that relationship evolve over time? Yeah, look, when you get to the level that, that you, you're regularly contending in major championships, you're going to have some rivals, and it's a great thing to have because that's what really spurs you on, and that's what makes you practice hard. Now, Phil was a fantastic player, and Tiger absolutely mired Phil's short game. That was something that he worked tremendously hard on. He wanted to be as good, if not better, than Phil at a short game. So they became you know, rivals because Phil back then, or even to this day, he's still a threat in major championships. But he, he was a guy then that was regularly on the scoreboard uh, at major championships and someone that you knew you were going to be competing against. And when you get those rivalries, it makes you work harder and harder. I think when David Duvall came along uh, and really struck the world on fire, I think that was the rivalry that Tiger really thought was going to ignite him uh, and someone that he was truly going to have to be at his best to beat, and I and I, I agree with that. And it was a shame that, you know, for whatever reason, David Duvall, after winning the Open Championship and then having a stellar year uh, following the Open Championship, and then his career sort of faded away to where he was not a contender. But I think more than anything, I think David Duvall was the guy that Tiger was really um, keen on and thought he would have an incredible rivalry for a length of time, but it didn't transpire. Yep, it turned out to be Phil. Over time, did, did Tiger always keep his eyes on Phil and what he was doing and where he was, where he was finishing, leading up to majors and that sort of thing? Was it, in Tiger's mind, do you think Phil was always the guy? Look, the, 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 Phil was obviously one. Of, when you played at a major championship, he was always one of the guys that you would look what he was shooting, what score he was on, because you, you know Phil's a dynamic player and can shoot a low score at any time. Uh, and I alluded that in the book, one of the best nine holes of golf uh, that I ever witnessed uh, was his, one of his nines at Augusta, the front nine of Augusta. Mm-hmm. And he can play on his day. We know he can play. His record is incredible. So um, there's certain players that are major championship. Yes, you want to know where they are. And you know, particularly some guys have an affinity for playing well at Augusta, as you know, and that every year uh, they're on the scoreboard at Augusta, Phil being one of those. There's still, uh, there's still one question I have after the book. Uh, you've caddied for a lot of great players, and you've been around a lot of great players in the game, and you're more than 30 years caddying uh, Raymond Floyd, Greg Norman, now Adam Scott. In your opinion, what was it about Tiger that made him so great? Well, I think it was just his desire to win. Uh, no person I've ever come across had that desire to win 
as much as he did. And the only thing that mattered to him was winning. That second didn't count for him. So I think that's what set him apart. I mean, his desire to win, uh, his focus to win, and his dedication to win was beyond anyone that I've ever seen. In what way? I, I just can't imagine Raymond Floyd. Raymond Floyd's intense. I mean, Greg Norman, you know, you were, he was so sickened in his major, his major disappointments. And I, I'm sure Adam Scott wants to win desperately, too. In what way? I, I mean, it's, I, I understand where you're going, but I'm still, these, all golfers are so competitive. What is it about Tiger that, that, you know, specifically makes it a different level? Well, I mean, yeah, it's hard to hard to actually get inside a guy's mind and, and, and see why his desire is greater than somebody else's. But his, his, he just, you know, some players some weeks will, will accept the top five, a top ten, whatever it might be. They'll know their game wasn't quite there, but he believed he could win every week on the PJ Tour. Of course, we know you can't do that, but, I mean, his his goal that every time he sat on the, you know, every they go on the tee, was to win the tournament. Now, some guys would get on the tee and they would know that this week my game is not quite where it needs to be. You know, if I can just do this and finish here, that'll be satisfactory. He was never, that was never a case with him. When he was stepping on the first tee of a tournament, his only thing that he would accept that week was winning. And, you know, and when he wasn't winning, it just made him practice harder. His, you know, his dedication was second to none. Mm. Do you have any specific examples where his desire, where it was that next level of competitive? competitiveness and desire that got him a win that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise? Well, I mean, I think the the absolute epitome of that sort of situation or that kind of thinking was the 2008 U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to this day, still don't believe that he won that tournament. Major golf championships, in my eyes, are not the guy that hits the greatest amount of good shots. It's the guy that he hits the least amount of bad shots. And that week, given the circumstances with his cruciate ligament tear and, and so forth, and he was struggling to even walk, the amount of poor shots he hit that week for, you know, in a major championship was probably the most he ever hit uh, and still went on to win the tournament. That there, it, like his focus and desire to win that tournament regardless of any situation playing on a broken leg, that there just examples or exemplifies what I'm talking about. Well, you certainly had a lot of great years together with Woods. Uh, have you have you spoken at all? Um, when was the last time you spoke? Uh, Adam was paired with Tiger Woods uh, at the U.S. Open. Uh, sorry, the British Open. Uh, I believe that was now uh, three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not spoken to Tiger apart from being on the golf course. We've been paired with him uh, on two situations. Otherwise, I haven't spoken to him. That's right. That was Muirfield. And is there anything, do you have anything left to say to him? Is there anything that you haven't said to him that you'd like to, or do you feel like things are, are pretty much closed now? Oh, look, I mean, you know, you, you always have some things that you'd like to ask somebody and, or, or, you know, generally talk about. But, look, we know the nature of the business in, in professional golf and professionally carried relationship. I mean, it's not unusual for a caddy to let a... Uh, sorry, a player to let a caddy go, uh, and the circumstances mightn't be ideal, and that particular caddy and player don't have any um, conversation going forward. It's not unusual. Do you watch a lot of golf when you're not caddying? Are there guys... Obviously, Adam Scott's your buddy, and you pull for him. Are there other guys that you pull for? 
I don't watch golf at all. It's something that uh, a lot of people find unusual. I've never watched one golf tournament ever, and I just don't watch. I'm actually not a big TV watcher to start with, but I certainly don't. The only, the only time I watch TV is to watch the news or rugby. Otherwise, I don't watch TV at all. Well, <laughs> you, have quite, golf. you have quite a few hobbies now in your retirement or, or semi-retirement. Are you retired or is, is that? are you even retired anymore? It seems like you're working too much to call yourself retired. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I guess you could say semi-retired. I don't work full time. That would be the. I guess you could say it's semi-retirement. I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Do you have any desire? Uh, is Adam Scott going to be your last PGA Tour uh, bag that you carry? Is there anybody else? You, you look at these young guys. You know, Jason Day is fellow fellow Aussie of Adams and his buddy. Do you have any desire maybe to continue making guest appearances beyond Adam Scott, or do you think this is the end of the line for you? Yeah, look, Adam is a guy that Adam and myself are friends, and he's a guy that I have great respect for. Uh, love watching him play golf, and love being involved with him. So, yeah, now once once my days of caddying part time for Adam uh, are over, that'll be my caddying career finished. Which I thought it was in 2014. I did, uh, you know, retire and think that's it for me, but uh, that came back into work uh, part time for Adam. But yes, that'll be definitely the end of my road as a caddy. Okay, and this year it'll be the four majors plus a few others. Is that the plan for now? Yeah, absolutely. Eight to ten tournaments I work for Adam, so yeah, looking forward to that. All right, Steve. Well, hey, we appreciate the time. We appreciate the long distance and very, very late in the night or early hours call from New Zealand. Uh, thanks for the time. We're looking forward to Augusta. We'll see you out there. Okay, look forward to it, Jeff. And there you have it. That was Steve Williams, polarizing not afraid to share his point, and uh, he took on all questions. So I give him credit, and I thank him for the time, uh, especially calling from 1.30 in the morning in New Zealand. We, we appreciate that. And we look forward to watching Steve and Adam Scott and all the rest at Augusta National in two weeks. It's going to be fun. It's about as intriguing of a Masters as I can remember. It feels like we've got a dozen guys who could win it. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Leave us a review and let us know what you think of the podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Jeff Ritter. See you next week.